Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Monday, August 20th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. So have you ever coughed so hard that you like thought you busted a rib or something? Well, I've done, I can do worse than that. I've coughed so hard that I threw out my back. <laughs> wow. That's pretty hard. It's still not as not as scary a story as the one we're talking about today. Cough so hard that you tear your dura mater, which is the uh, a layer that protects your brain, and out of it starts a slow leak of your cerebrospinal fluid. I'm gonna just go out on a limb and say that's probably something you'd see a doctor for. Yes, except of course you wouldn't know because you cough so hard, you then have a headache a few days later that just doesn't go away. I mean, do you really associate that with a coughing fit? Not at all. Certainly not. And in fact, it took a long time for Andrea Buchanan's doctors to figure out exactly what happened. Eventually, they traced it back to um, the coughing fit. But in the meantime, she experienced cognitive impairment and constant pain. She was also going through a pretty difficult time in her life. She was you know, transitioning into being a freelance writer. She had two kids that she had to support. And she was in the middle of a divorce that ended a two-decade-long marriage. And through all of this, she had these mysterious symptoms where, you know, she just had trouble concentrating and she just felt really foggy and she just had constant headaches. Eventually, they figured out what happened. And even then, because it's such a rare thing to, you know, have your cerebrospinal fluid leaking out, she had to, you know, take control out of her own rehabilitation. And one of the, my favorite parts of the story is that she is a classically trained pianist and she used her piano training to figure out how to rehabilitate her brain. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So that's our interview for today. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Andrea J. Buchanan. Today's episode was brought to you by Mother Dirt. Are you too clean? Modern hygiene has led us to believe that removing the bacteria from our body is a good thing, but that's not the case. Our skin, much like our guts, needs good bacteria to thrive. Mother Dirt's AO plus mist restores a good bacteria that once existed on our skin naturally, but has been wiped away by modern hygiene. 
Mother Dirt's patented ammonia oxidizing bacteria work by consuming the ammonia in your sweat and producing beneficial byproducts for your skin, bringing balance to your skin biome. Since ammonia is the stinky part of your sweat, the AOB and the AO Plus Mist helps with BO. 60% of Mother Dirt AO Plus Mist users are able to stop using deodorant altogether. And 66% of users find that they take shorter showers and cut an average of two and a half products from their routine. Right now, Inquiring Minds listeners will get 20% off and free shipping with the code MINDS. Head to motherdirt.com to learn more and get 20% off and free shipping with code MINDS. Plant the seeds of healthy living and nurture your nature at motherdirt.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Looker. Use Looker to take your analytics to the next level. Looker is a modern analytics platform bringing data-driven decision-making to every level of business. From innovative startups to enterprise-grade businesses, thousands of companies are using Looker in every department to access, analyze, and act on their data. Looker gives you the right tools for the job. Their modern best-of-breed data workflows free up time for higher-value work and has solutions for every department, from customer support and marketing to product and data science. Looker is built with your security in mind and ensures that your data is safe, secure, and in your control. Companies like Deliveroo, Trivago, TransferWise, Yahoo, and more rely on Looker for their business-intelligent needs. Get more from your data with greater efficiency by using Looker. Head to looker.com slash minds today for an exclusive free trial. That's looker.com slash minds to get started today. Andrea Buchanan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start from the beginning to give our listeners a bit of context of uh, sort of the journey that you've gone through over the last while. So why don't you take us back to the moment where things all started? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It's not often when uh, that life provides you with an actual crossroads moment, but I was literally at a crossroads in March of 2015 when I had uh, a coughing fit. I was on the tail end of um, a pretty bad flu and I was outside walking to breakfast with a friend and I just, you know, caught the wind the wrong way and, and uh, it triggered a coughing fit. That was pretty bad, but at the time I didn't think much more of it than, you know, being embarrassed by coughing so much, uh, being worried that I might cough so hard I would throw up in the middle of the street. But once it was done, I thought it was done until a few weeks later, I started noticing I had a really terrible, persistent headache in a very specific spot right at the back of my head on the right side of my head, uh, the base of my skull. And I never had anything like it. And it just didn't go away. The only time I noticed any relief from it was when I would lay down. And then after I'd been laying down for a while, it felt better. But within, you know, minutes of standing, it would get bad again. So I went to my primary doctor. It was, you know, we ruled out sinusitis and other things that could be. Um, and then I had an MRI and one of the doctors suggested that this could be a, a CSF leak. I mean, it's amazing that that can happen from coughing. You know, it's like yeah. that in some ways that's the, it, you know, in the most relatable and the scariest part of your story right. is that. Right. Because you know, who doesn't cough? <laughs> yeah. Especially, you know, like post viral coughs are the worst because they just seem to like never end. Um, yeah. How did you trace it back to that cough? Well, when I was initially given this, um, you know, suspected diagnosis or a theory that, you know, this could be a, spine, a CSF leak. 
they'd asked me, you know, did the doctors ask, did you have any sort of trauma? Did you have any recent, you know, illnesses or car accidents or anything like that? And I'd said, no, I, nothing, but I, I did have the flu and I had a really bad coughing fit. And they said, well, that, that could do it. It took a while to find out exactly, you know, to, to, to figure out whether or not that was actually the case. Um, you know, the initial, the initial thought was that since I had, and I think this is a common thought, even for doctors who might, you know, might not otherwise be familiar with CSF leaks, but because my pain was in my head, literally, you know, located in my head, they thought it might be a cranial leak. Like I might be leaking from with, you know, inside my skull somewhere, but actually what I had was a spinal CSF leak. And the clue to that was that I got felt better when I laid down and got worse when I stood up. With people who have cranial leaks, often they feel worse upon standing and will often leak cerebrospinal fluid from their nose. But people with spinal CSF leaks where the tear uh, or hole is somewhere along their spine, they feel better laying down and their headache gets worse when they stand up. So we should say that CSF or cerebrospinal fluid really is uh, supposed to, I mean, it has a lot of functions, but one of the functions that it does is it kind of protects your brain from uh, the kind of trauma that would happen if you just shook your head vigorously or, you know, even even kind of just nodded and so forth. Um, you know, the, the, the it kind of it, it encases the brain and kind of protects it like a little bit like airbags, but really pretty ineffective airbags, as we've learned from um, concussion research. Absolutely. Yeah, um, it, it, it functions as a, you know, as a protective mechanism, but it also is a, a little bit of its own circulatory system. You know, it's not just sitting there inert around your, around your brain, um, but it's circulating throughout, you know, around your brain and spinal cord and, um, and you need it in order to function properly. And if you don't have enough, if you're leaking, if it's, if your cerebrospinal fluid is escaping through a hole or a tear in your dura mater, which is the tough covering that covers your brain and spinal cord and this fluid, um, then without enough fluid, your brain can sink, you know, due to gravity. That's why people with spinal CSF leaks feel worse when they stand up. You know, this fluid is draining away from the, your head uh, and, you know, towards the bottom of your spine and your brain doesn't have this, the support or buoyancy that it needs. And it can be very painful. And also one of the uh, sort of more recent areas of research that I think is really fascinating about CSF is that the volume of CSF seems to increase when we're sleeping and that there's this like idea that it functions as a kind of, you know, waste removal system where, you know, the, you know, the byproducts of the chemical reactions during the day get kind of, you know, cleaned out at night. And so if you're sleep deprived, you have all these cognitive symptoms, you know, it's hard to focus and your memory goes. Is that what you were experiencing cognitively? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tease out what what was from uh, that and what was from the level of pain I was having because, uh, you know, anybody who lives with chronic pain knows how draining and wearing that can be. Uh, and also hard to tease out how much of that was just due to having lower fluid um, and, you know, the brain not being able to function due to that. Um, but yes, um, you know, I had this incessant pain that after a while didn't even go away once I laid down anymore. And I had trouble thinking. I had trouble following conversations. I, I had trouble holding ideas in my head and remembering things from one moment to the next. I felt very much like the me that was me 
that used to be the me in charge was actually way in the back seat, just kind of watching everything happen. And I was able to function and do things and without fully being in charge of myself. It was a very profoundly unsettling experience. Yeah. And as a writer, I mean, someone who's already introspective and and who sort of thinks about uh, how people think, um, you know, in some ways, it must have been obviously incredibly frightening. Also really interesting in terms of giving you a kind of bird's eye view of your own mind. Yeah. I mean, I was protected a little bit from the like sheer existential terror of it by being so out of it, really, by being in so much pain. It was only in moments of clarity, you know, after I'd had a procedure to kind of boost my brain fluid, like an epidural blood patch. Um, it was only in those moments where I had a little bit of, of lucidity and clarity that I could fully appreciate how scary it was, what was happening, and also kind of this, you know, uh, appreciate this little peek to see the wizard behind the curtain, so to speak, of of what, you know, brain and mind and and consciousness. So tell us a little bit about the what what happened once you had the diagnosis a few weeks after the coughing fit. Um, what were kind of the next steps and 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 how how did that, you know, what was your experience of of the different changes that happened? Well, initially, you know, I had a this this was the CSF leak was offered as a possible um, explanation for what was going on, but there were no experts in CSF leak um, to treat me. And so I was recommended what most um, CSF leak patients are recommended at first, which is bed rest, um, being flat as much as possible to give your body a chance to heal, uh, caffeine and um, salt to kind of, you know, flood the uh, your blood vessels and boost everything. Um, increase- Wait, so you have to lie still and drink a bunch of coffee? That sounds like torture. Uh, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, I was like, wait, I get to drink Diet Coke and eat Doritos? I was born for this, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea is being, you know, you want to, you, you want to like give yourself um, y- more fluid. You want to retain more fluid, and that will theoretically help you feel better. But these are these are kind of first line treatments, and not really treatments at all. Um, they're just something to kind of help with the symptoms. But um, in my case, as with many other people, um, this didn't really do anything. I was, you know, I felt better when I laid down, but it didn't cure me. It was just a way to tolerate it. So um, eventually, uh, the next step, usually, uh, the doctors recommend is an epidural blood patch, which is um, Uh, It's like when people have epidural anesthesia in childbirth, um, you're injected um, in the epidural space. But instead of uh, being injected with um, painkillers, you're being injected with your own blood. And the idea there is that it will you know, narrow the, the blood will clot, it will narrow the space, um, and thus force, you know, the, the cerebrospinal fluid upwards and possibly provoke an immune response so that your body can come work on repairing the whole. But, uh, you know, normally an epidural blood patch, uh, like epidural anesthesia is performed, you know, very low in the lumbar spine. Um, and my leak was up higher. So although it gave me some relief, it didn't, 
cover the hole. It didn't cover the tear. It didn't didn't solve the problem. Uh, eventually, after months of bed rest and several rounds of um, these uh, blood patches, I went to Duke University Hospital where there's a team of radiologists, neuroradiologists, who are who specialize in repairing, in identifying, repairing, and treating uh, spinal CSF leaks. And so what did they do? Well, they um, did a number of tests to see, to measure my the volume of my cerebrospinal fluid, um, to try to visualize the leak. There's a test called a, a CT myelogram um, that can sometimes pinpoint the source of a leak, although I, some of the doctors explained, you know, it's like trying to take a picture of a raindrop. You know, it's, it's a lot about timing and you, you'll probably miss it. But in the cases of big leaks, um, this can be a very helpful test. Um, and then I was eventually patched again, just with blood, like the epidural blood patch I'd had before, but I was patched in four places from the top, from just below my neck to the the base of my spine. So I was able to be patched under CT guidance, you know, so they could see exactly where they were injecting, how the blood was spreading, um, and they could see exactly what was happening. And the goal being to coat my entire spine with my own blood to kind of seal up the entire area, provoke an immune response so that my body can start repairing this tear. And... Um, and protect it, kind of like a Band-Aid made out of blood. So it's not like, you know, if you have a tear in an artery in your heart, for example, they can put in um, some kind of a stent or, you know, like a, a kind of netting that, that allows that to sort of get, get plugged up. But there's, so there's no such thing for the CSF? Well, it depends. If, uh, if uh, your leak is visible on imaging like that, and they know exactly where it is, then they can go in very precisely and they can use a mixture of blood and fibrin glue. Um, so not exactly a mesh, but, you know, a, a glue to kind of, to hold this spot together. Um, for people who have other causes for their spinal CSF leaks, like not just like a tear, but some sort of like problem with a a, you know, nerve root cyst or a venous fistula, you know, then there's different procedures involved um, that are more targeted and specific to that, whatever is the source of their, their leak. But for mine, which was hard to see and hard to precisely locate, they just had to treat um, with the most basic version of what they do, which is these these blood patches. And given my symptoms and my description, um, talking with me about what had happened and what I was experiencing, it sounded to them like my leak was probably in my thoracic spine. And, um, you know, so that, that was the treatment plan. We would do these blood patches targeting my thoracic spine and around it. And then if that didn't work, then we'd go from there. But in my case, I was very, very lucky and it did work. I had, I didn't have to go back for more patches. Um, those four patches did the trick and then it was just about recovering. So, yeah. So I wanted to spend some time talking about the recovery because in some ways this is, um, to me, the most interesting part of your story, especially given your background as a classically trained pianist. 
You have a master's uh, from the Conservatory of Music in San Francisco, uh, yep. where I teach. <laughs> so, oh, wonderful! <laughs> um, yeah, that's one of the uh, sort of you know coincidental things that that um, made me smile when I was reading your book, um, and uh, and from the Boston, uh, sorry, the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, and uh, so you already are in some ways a model of neuroplasticity. We like to think of, you know, musicians, professional musicians as kind of really just poster children for how malleable the brain is with training, um, how many changes we can observe. So you had already changed your brain uh, in, in many, you know, sort of measurable ways, becoming a pianist. And now, you know, you had this leak, which caused other, you know, unexpected, unwanted changes, and you had to rebuild. So, so tell us a little bit about that journey, um, about about what the rebuilding was like. And, and, and first, let's start with sort of what you felt that you had to rebuild. So once you, you know, once this problem was kind of stoppered, um, what were the kind of remaining symptoms that you had to work through? Well, I had a, a number of things to deal with, you know, immediately physically following the procedure. And uh, one, I mean, and many of those were outside of my control. The, the largest one was the fact that because of my leak, due to my leak, I'd been overproducing cerebrospinal fluid for like a year. So um, once the leak was fixed, it just took a while for my brain to catch up to the fact that it didn't need to keep producing so much fluid. So for the first, you know, month, first for a couple of months, um, I had to deal with the physical effects of having too much fluid instead of too little cerebrospinal fluid. And um, that comes with its own set of symptoms, kind of the opposite of what I experienced with a low pressure headache. Now I had a high pressure headache, which meant um, it felt worse when I laid down and it felt worse if I had caffeine. And so all the coping mechanisms I'd had to live with the chronic pain of my low pressure a headache from my spinal leak. Um, all of that was out the window. I had to come up with new ways to cope with the physical effects of, you know, having too much fluid going on. Um, and that just took a while for my body to start producing less and for me to physically be less sensitive to the ebbs and flows. Um, like, like we said earlier, you know, it's a, it's a, there's a rhythm to how the CSF is circulated. And I was very sensitive to, in, to increases in, in pressure. So there was this physical thing that I had to recover from, uh, along with the procedure itself, which, you know, my spine felt like a lead pipe for a month. And, um, you know, I'd spent nine months basically in bed. So I had a lot to recover from physically. And I'd asked the doctors when I had the procedure done, you know, how, how long will it take for me to recover physically? But more importantly for me, how long will it take for my brain to feel back to normal again, or, or at least baseline? And they told me it would probably take about a year. So I kind of knew going into this period that it would be a while and it would be slow. But I didn't have much guidance from them about what to expect because from their perspective, you know, they, they were there to stop the leak and that's pretty much what they knew how to do. But they, they didn't really know about what recovery is like. There's just not a lot of research done for spinal CSF leak patients in recovery to know. So they couldn't give me any really hard and fast guidelines other than physical things. You know, don't bend, don't twist, don't lift, don't do yoga anymore, don't weight lift, that sort of thing. Um so it was kind of up to me to figure it out. Um, 
And once the, once I was, you know, recovered a little bit from the physical aspects of having my leak fixed, um, and I was, I was very tired. I, I was very much like a, like a brain injury patient. I needed so much sleep. I slept all the time. Um, and, uh, and slowly, gradually, I started to feel a little bit more like myself. I mostly had, uh, executive function stuff that still lingered. I, the neurological things that were happening when I was leaking, um, went away. I didn't have these periods of, uh, uh, dysfunction where, you know, I, I didn't have, I didn't have the, you know, tingling limbs or not being able to know where my arms were in space. If I closed my eyes, I, I didn't have the things happening that used to happen when I was leaking and would be up upright for too long. Those, those resolved. Um, but I did have still problems with memory, problems with uh, searching for the right words, problems with um, uh, just executive function stuff. It just took a while. But once I was able to start reading again, because I that was very exhausting to me, just like too much noise was exhausting and something that had a lot of patterns to it visually was exhausting. Reading was also really exhausting. But once I was able to start reading a little bit, I did a lot of reading about neuroplasticity and it was very interesting to me as a musician. Um, and reading the stories about patients, especially traumatic brain injury patients or stroke patients, um, who were doing physical therapy, um, with an eye towards, you know, neuroplasticity training, that sort of thing. Um, it was fascinating to me because so many of, of the, 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 the therapeutic things they were talking about were practical life things, you know, stacking cups, um, picking up things, you know, small objects with your fingers, you know, fine motor skills. That, that sounded so much to me like practicing piano, you know, doing something with intense concentration and fine motor skills and really requiring your brain to focus in on something difficult. And so I thought, you know, this was something that I could do. Probably, this might be be a thing that could help my brain. So, and and had you been um, before you had the leak? Uh, were you did you were you playing regularly? Um, was that taking a backseat in your career? What was kind of your 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 mus musical life like before the leak? I was playing a little bit, but I was uh, I. Hmm. I guess before my leak, I had been trying to be more regular about practicing again. I had. I had um, started to, I wanted to get some repertoire back under my fingers. So before the leak, I wasn't practicing anywhere near what I used to practice when I was, you know, being a musician. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I was practicing for a couple of hours, a couple of days a week, um, just mostly, you know, for my own benefit, I wasn't performing, but I, I was, I was relearning repertoire and trying to learn some new things. Um, but it was pretty, pretty low key. It wasn't something that I was making a daily habit of doing. So then in the period of recovery, tell me what that was like. Yeah. Once I started thinking about, um, using piano as a brain rehab, um, because at the time as well, I, I couldn't tolerate sitting. It, it raised my intracranial pressure to sit. And so it would bring on a terrible headache. And I was thinking, you know, perhaps sitting at the piano where you have to have such good posture and, um, I'd be concentrating on something else. It might, it might take my mind off the, 
I just thought it might be a way for me to increase my tolerance for sitting and maybe do something therapeutic for my brain. So I, um, I kind of took my cue from what I'd read about, um, this neuroplasticity stuff, um, in focusing on really small movements that required a lot of concentration. So rather than diving in and trying to play through old repertoire, which I could do, um, I decided I would start from square one. So I got out my old Pishna exercises and I just did these very basic, um, this basic finger work, basically just focusing on, you know, one hand at a time, just really trying to concentrate as, as much as I could. And just starting out maybe with just even five or 10 minutes at a time and, um, trying to do a little bit of that each day. And within several weeks, you know, I was able to sit for half an hour, which is much longer than I was able to sit before. And I was able to um, go through, you know, a few exercises and um, not feel too fatigued, wiped out. And within, you know, a month or two, it was, I was seeing the effects of this practice everywhere. I was able to speak better. I was able to think quicker. I felt like I was able to hold concepts in my head better. And I, I could remember things from one moment to the next. And even my doctors were asking like, wait, what are you doing? Are you taking something that I'm not aware of? Because you, you seem so much better. I, I really felt myself coming back to myself. I felt my brain working again. And, uh, and then being able to start playing repertoire. And I, I, I went through old repertoire that I learned when I was a teenager. And it was like, uh, it, it was unreal because I not only, I had this muscle memory in for some things, but in some instances, practicing these things, I remembered practicing it as, you know, as a 13, 14, 17 year old, not just the music itself, but what I was thinking on a specific day when I was working on that measure. It was as if I opened up these pathways. Uh, it was like the snow melting and you can see everything underneath, you know? And it was like I had a radio in my head all the time of classical music. I had, you know, I, I just felt like something opened up in my brain from this kind of practice. And, uh, and if uh, of anything that I did, I think besides sleeping and besides time, uh, this piano work was probably the most important work I did for my brain in that first year of recovery. You know, one of the really interesting things that you talk about is uh, this piano teacher that you had that described to you that, you know, when you see a rest uh, on a page, that doesn't mean that you actually, you know, take a nap. Right. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to just talk a little bit about that, because I think that is something that for a lot of people, for a lot of musicians, you know, the difference between a musical performance and a non-musical performance can happen in the silence in between playing. Yes. Um, you know, like, do you, are you still present? Do you drop, you know, and, and the audience sees that right away. So yeah, tell us a little bit about um, this, this concept of, of rest and how that also relates to what you were experiencing. Yeah. Um, my teacher always talked about, well, time is obviously really important in music. And I thought about time a lot too when I was recovering um, because it, when you're ill, you know, time takes on this whole other dimension. And I thought about the time, the concept of time and the concept of self. And 
do you have a self if you're outside of time? And, you know, when you're ill and you experience time differently, does that change something about you and yourself and the way you think? And of course, in returning to music, all of that was very pertinent because it's all about time and what you do with it. My teacher was always really conscientious about time and respecting time. And if, you know, if you take a, if you extend a phrase here, you have to make up that time somewhere else. And, um, you have to be cognizant of the time you take and the time you you're hurrying and the, the time you're slowing down. And for her rests were really important because it was about preparation, especially for me. I have, I have small hands and I have to be very judicious about how I expend my energy and slow practice, especially was a time for me to be really conscious of how am I going to build, built, you know, how am I going to build in moments of relaxation here so that I, my muscles aren't tense and how am I going to build in places where I can breathe um, so that I can do this when it's at tempo and taking advantage of these moments, whether they're actual rests in the score or just moments between phrases is really smart because at tempo, everything is rushing past you and you can get you know, rigid with the tension of it. Um, but building that into your practice and building the relaxation points in and taking advantage of these rests as moments of preparation um, rather than just you know, dead space or nothingness is really key to being able to be not only just engaged physically in a functional way in the performance, but also musically. Yeah, I mean, I I loved the um, sort of uh, analogy that she gave about it's like a squirrel, you know, that sort of runs around and then the squirrel stops, but the squirrel's not, you know, napping. Right. <laughs> it's not sleeping. It's right. It's just conserving energy for a minute. Yeah, and it took me a really long time to understand what she meant. I thought she meant just stop and that's it. But there is a way to stop and be really, 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 really present while being 100% relaxed. But if you look at a squirrel who like is running and then stops in the park, they don't go limp. They just freeze in place, you know, like they're, they're fully, fully present, but they're not tense, you know. And I think that's what she was trying to explain to me about landing in a, in a, in a moment and having the presence there without having tension there. So this this came at a time when, you know, I, you strike me as the kind of person that probably doesn't spend a lot of time resting and doing nothing or certainly didn't uh, before the leak. You know, you have two kids, uh, you know, you you were dealing with things uh, involved with your marriage. You have best-selling books um, that you've already written and this professional mu music career so how did this sort of change your outlook in terms of, you know, either how you approach uh, your kids and or or your career or what have you in a, in a time when we're, it's so easy for us to get sucked in to filling up every moment of our lives with something, um, you know, especially if we're career driven, um, especially if we're, you know, women and, and, and there are children involved, which, you know, take, you know, takes out a, a, a career hit for us every time we have a kid. <laughs> So you feel like you have to do twice as much work, um, you know, t so, t so tell me a little bit about how this experience has sort of changed your outlook on these different other aspects of your life. Well, I mean, being sick is very humbling because especially when you have a something chronic or something that lasts for, 
you know, months or years, you quickly learn that you cannot make plans past the next moment, you know? Um, and in that sense, you know, in the book, I compared it to like slow practice where you have to just be there from moment to moment, not looking ahead, you know, because you can't. I, when I was sick with this leak, I didn't know, I literally didn't know whether or not I would be able to stand up for 20 minutes to make dinner at the end of the day, let alone make a commitment to do something with a friend or take on a professional obligation. Like I, I couldn't make plans. Um, and it was actually kind of unsettling when I began to feel better and I moved further into my, into my recovery when to actually start thinking more than a moment ahead, you know, a day ahead, a week ahead, a month ahead. You know, I, I remember putting something on the calendar for like six months in advance the first time after I was starting to feel well enough to consider myself like a normal person again and feeling anxious, like how, how bold, to, you know, how ridiculous is it that, to put this on my calendar thinking that I'll be fine in six months? Um, so yeah, the living with this leak and with this, with the pain that I had was, you know, it kind of made everything get right down to its essence. You know, I, I couldn't handle, um, even, you know, normal day-to-day -day stuff, let alone extraneous stuff that, you know, normally we take on without thinking. Um, so in that sense, it was, it was humbling. It really forced me to just be where I was. And if that meant doing nothing, that, then that's what it meant. I did nothing, but that was difficult. Um, so I want to remind our listeners that Andy's book, The Beginning of Everything, The Year I Lost My Mind and Found Myself, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, Andy, what advice would you give to someone else who is struggling with uh, some kind of uh, neurological or psychological condition that you know is, is changing their sense of self and maybe they don't have quite the same tools as you do in terms of your history of, of sort of being comfortable with slow practice and, and, and the piano. Um, what, what would you tell them, you know, to do uh, to sort of help them get back onto the path of recovery? Yeah, it's interesting because I did wonder when I was doing my initial, you know, piano therapy, you know, would this be as helpful for somebody who hadn't studied piano before or who hadn't studied at a high level before? Uh, and I think there is something to uh, that kind of physical musical therapy that would be useful regardless of whether someone's had training or not. But I have talked to lots of people who didn't have any music background, um, but found things like knitting, like doing something with their hands, like knitting uh, or crocheting um, that involves, you know, paying attention to small movements, um, but is also something that you can do that's very relaxing and soothing that kind of hits that, uh, that solving puzzles kind of feeling in your brain of, of making something and putting something together. So I think, you know, even if you don't have, you know, high level training in music, you can still probably benefit from something like that, you know, whether it's uh, doing something with crafts like that, or, or even trying to play the piano, uh, even if you haven't had lessons in years, uh, or even, you know, playing a puzzle game on your phone, uh, if you can handle looking at things visually, um, these kind of small 
like puzzles, uh, physical things, I think can be very useful. Uh, and then in terms of just coping in general, I, I, I'm a huge advocate for talk therapy, or at least if you are talking to somebody, having somebody to talk to, but ideally a therapist that you can speak to, uh, whether via phone or, you know, or video chat, if you can't actually physically get to a place, um, it can be really useful when dealing with chronic illness, chronic pain, um, to have somebody that you can talk about this with who is not your caregiver and is, you know, a neutral third party who can kind of hold that space with you. Andy, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What an incredible story and and an uplifting one at that. Like this has a happy-ish ending, as happy as you could expect. Um, but I have backing up for a second, like I love how plastic our brains are. I, I love the idea that you can rehabilitate yourself if you work at it. But how generalizable is that? Like, is that going to be true for people that have different types of traumatic brain injuries? Or is that even going to be consistent person to person? Yeah. So this is why for decades after the first evidence of neuroplasticity in humans uh, started to be shown, you know, people, the scientists, neuroscientists still rejected the idea that the brain can really, you know, sort of have these fundamental neuroanatomical changes in adulthood. Um, and that's because for most people, you have a brain injury and it is a lifelong problem that you now have to deal with. And it's not that they're not trying hard enough or, you know, in a lot of cases where they're not, you know, they're not getting the right care. Um, there are just some parts of the brain that are less plastic than others, less malleable than others. Uh, there are some functions that, you know, are more reliable on specific brain regions. So they're not, you know, they're not duplicated in the brain. Uh, so if you lose that particular part of your brain, uh, then, you know, it's very hard to gain that function back. Um, so yeah, I think all of these things are, are things that we need to consider. And sometimes we hear about neuroplasticity and we think that it's like infinitely possible, but there are real biological limitations. Uh, I just think that, you know, one one thing that, that we neuroscientists talk about in, with respect to musical training is that the musician's brain is a kind of model of neuroplasticity because of, you know, the intensive training, uh, the focus that people bring to it, the sort of diversity, the variety of ways in which people approach uh, that kind of training. And so because it's that kind of you know, it's really easy to see neuroplasticity in a musician's brain. Um, I like this this kind of notion that maybe some we can take some aspects of the that training uh, and apply it to rehabilitation for other individuals. But I agree with you that you know it's going to be limited. And, and and she was fortunate because she already knew how to approach a training. Sometimes it's really hard to learn how to train. Yeah, and I I think one of the lessons that you've heard over and over again on this show when we ever whenever we talk about neuroplasticity it's generally done in this frame of somebody spending a lot of time very structured time intense time uh, doing that training so you can't just download an app and like play on it a few minutes a day at inconsistent times and expect to see similar effects. Yeah. And, and you know, you know, probably the number one complaint amongst physical therapists is that people don't do the exercises that they are assigned. And, you know, the same tr is going to be true for cognitive rehabilitation. I mean, it's really about, you know, whether or not you do the exercises. Um, and even so, we're still pretty much in, in, you know, the field is in its infancy in terms of understanding exactly what type of training is going to be most effective. And it has to be individualized. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, 
a long way to go still. Um, but I do think it's really interesting to take the perspective of an individual who is essentially an expert in training um, and listen to her experience uh, with this particular problem. Do you think the field by and large is taking advantage of the potential of training like this, rehabilitation in this way? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who are are, are definitely working at it. Again, the other thing that you're going to pop up to is the fact that it's expensive, right? Uh, I mean, if you if you want to have this kind of one on one work with a therapist, you're going to need to have an insurance company pay for it. And an insurance company is going to want to see measurable results, which are often difficult to, to quantify. Uh, so I think we do come up with a lot of these, you know, obstacles. Uh, but I also think that more stories like this, you know, more effective training techniques that might involve virtual reality or other ways in which you can really put somebody in a different environment, um, in in a much cheaper fashion, uh, are are going to show the power of this kind of training, and and certainly, you know, we know that the brain obviously is incredibly important, and people who have traumatic brain injuries, of which there are many, many, many millions, um, really do need a lot, our help. So that's it for this episode of Inquiring Minds. I want to thank you for joining us. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds, where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last